the Karoo occupies about a third of the total area of South Africa, and farmers in the Karoo mainly farm with livestock like sheep. And in some areas where there is irrigation, you'll also find them growing lucerne for feeding their livestock or intensive crops like citrus. We started our journey and drove from Craddock to Pearson via the Swazhook Pass. Then off to Jansenville, we stopped at the deserted Mount Stewart and before going to our overnight stop at Malu Farm, we stopped on the Groot River Bridge for a sundown and to admire the Cape Folding Mountains. Jansenville has for long been the heart of the South African mohair production and it is the proud home of the Mohair Museum, which unfortunately, like most other stores in town, was closed between one and two. In these little Karoo towns, you'll not even find your regular spa or checker stores, and we had to try and find what we needed at the local mom and pop stores, which was quite a struggle. Now let's get back to our conversation with Hermann and Joe. So from Craddock, we went into the Karoo and uh, things got less and less interesting. The shops got smaller and smaller and uh, most of the next town, Jansenville, was closed when we got there at about 12 or 1 o'clock. But I would disagree, uh, saying it's less interesting. I think it became more and more interesting because these kind of villages, they just have have something special about it. I think, was it in Jansenville where we went to a butchery? And uh, I think a bit later also to a village which only had a, a church and uh, uh, we'll talk about it just now, a grocery store, like a ghost town, but uh, fascinating in a way, how yeah. people lived there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Joe. I mean, you, you, you get to these Karoo towns. I mean, they're, they're obviously quite remote or there's not much else in terms of other settlements between between them. Um, but there's something about them that, that I just love um, about these Karoo towns. Um, and it's, it's just that feeling of remoteness. And to me, also, the dry areas of a country, for me, somehow have a lot more character. I think things get a lot older because they just don't, degrade that quickly from the rain and the humidity and, 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 and things like that yeah. we have here in other parts of the country so you can see like old cars there that if that had been in KwaZulu-Natal they would have been they would have rusted away within 10 years but those cars have been lying there probably for 50 or 60 or 70 years and they're still there and the same for some of those old buildings we we stopped at Mount Stewart, and I mean those those old shops were all deserted, but everything still seemed intact. Yeah, I mean, there are just not that many people there as well. So you know, in Mount Stewart, we we stopped and we looked into that old church. I mean, it was also sort of derelict; the windows were broken. But if I held my phone in there just to have a look on my screen, what was inside, and all the furniture and stuff was still there. And even that shop in Mount Stewart, uh, I don't know how long it's been closed for, but there was still stuff in there which in other parts of the country would have obviously been taken away, especially the corrugated iron roof and wooden flooring and the furniture inside and so on. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, to me, that's that's in a way quite sad that things are derelict, but it also it's a very characterful thing 
to look at, especially if you were a photographer, which I am not, but I think you, you can make some great photos in these little towns. Um, yeah, Mount Stewart is is uh, between Janssenville and state level. So, um, you know, that we only got there a bit later in the day. So from Craddock, we actually went along a, another one of these roads that I identified on Google Maps with the terrain view. Um, instead of going on the tar road south from Craddock, we went back into Craddock and, and went along this road. Um, and it turned out to be a mountain pass, which I didn't even expect. It's called the Swars Hook Pass. And this is the only road where we actually had very slight rain or drizzle, but only right at the top of the pass because it was so high that you actually went into the clouds there. And coming down on the other side, we got into quite a nice sort of farming area, but again, quite remote. I think only uh, stock farming there. But then as you drop down into uh, Pearston, I think it was, mm. a beautiful mountain pass going down there. Um, we we stopped at the top for quite a long time. Uh, it, it, the scenery was just so amazing, especially with the clouds hanging around and the sun shining down in the valley. And then after Pearston, uh, we went on another very long straight dirt road. I think it was about 70 kilometers or so from Pearston to uh, Janssenville. Um, and again, it, it was... It was amazing to always see how how people or farmers make a living there. Like in the middle of nowhere, it's just short karoo bosses and so on. There was a huge, big Victorian house with a wraparound veranda, uh, and you think, you know, how how could people have made a living there to have built such an amazing house in such a remote area? Yeah, and then we went into the Grootrafier Valley, and. I didn't see any Grootrafier. <laughs> there was there was a big dry river valley, and these guys that we stayed with hadn't had rain for I think eight years or something. Hey, it was so dry, and uh, but I guess that's what it is like. Yeah, I think that Grootrafier is generally dry for most of the year, but it actually forms part of the the catchment area because that river flows from west to east towards Port Elizabeth. So. The rain that does fall there eventually um, does feed, uh, you know, the the water for the for the PE metro. Um, but the farmers did say it was very dry. They haven't had proper rains uh, for about eight years. Yeah, we went along the Skruetrefir Valley, which is very scenic because it's between two mountain ranges. We did a short little detour of two meet two, two about two kilometers to a place where we saw the first uh, um, Cape Fold Mountains with those twisted rock formations. Mm -hmm. We stopped there a little bit. It was late in the afternoon, perfect time to have a beer because we didn't really have that much further to go. Fortunately, we had the, the camping fridge in the back, so everything was nice and chilly. Um, so from there, I think we had about another 30 k's or so to go to Marluk Guest Farm. Yeah, and there we... we Enjoyed the little animals, the goats <laughs> and lambs that were hand-reared. Obviously, I think uh, when they triplets or something, they they pinch one and... <laughs> yeah, they had to hand-rear them. And uh, so the farmer was busy with that. Took some photos of him with his small little lambs, but also heard of his being involved in the farmer's co-op there. And the, yeah, the challenges, especially with the drought, you know, and... Um, I think it, it was around those days when there was so much rain in KZN, actually. 
Um, and uh, when I heard later how much rain we had in, in, in Durban, it, I think in three days we had more rain than that place had had in nearly a year. Yeah. And for me, interesting that the weeks before, the Transbavians Trans had just taken place, which is a, a mountain bike race through the Bavians Kloof, where they have to cycle nonstop through through this big valley and for us I was very much looking forward to to the Bavians Kloof. It, it it's such a big name. People speak about it with so much awe and I didn't really know what to expect. Yeah, I mean the Bavi uh, the where we stayed there is actually quite close to the Bavians Kloof area, but we didn't go there at that point of time. We were still heading further west from there. Bavians Kloof we did on, on the way back. Uh, we actually never got into state level town which is also quite a very quiet town but very quaint as well it would have been nice to to pop in there from malu i think it was quite a long dirt road actually still until we got out onto the tar at, at willow moor but again it was uh, still in the Grootrefier valley uh, nice scenery mountains left and right and a nice nice area to ride um and uh, I think uh, also we got a few more corners and things. The, the previous days were were very, very straight, where you tend to sit down on your bike as well because uh, it's just so straight and easy to ride. I and mean, obviously riding a bike like that, you know, with, with adventure bikes, uh, the advice is always to stand up whenever you see a hazard, whatever it might be, whether it is now a, a change in the surface of the road or a dog or people or a speed bump or a corner or you know something like that the reason for it is also <clears throat> not only that you can see further ahead but also you can react a lot faster now i don't know i'm not, I'm not a physics professor but um, there's always this argument that if you stand up do you have a higher or a lower center of gravity in my opinion you probably have a higher center of gravity but the fact that you, it's so much easier to shift your weight from left to right and to react much faster makes it much safer to, to ride, even if you probably have a higher center of gravity. That was for me also quite a so, something new when I when I did one of these uh, courses uh, because it's a bit of counterintuitive to actually to think that you feel safer when you stand up on a motorbike, but uh, it really is uh, is a fact, and you have to in the beginning just force yourself to do it. But then you see how much more flexible and um, yeah, how much quicker you can react when you, when you do that. And this was obviously the ideal situation to try all of this out. Yeah, so on Willow Moor we got onto the tower again. We didn't really go into town, even though that is quite a, a quaint little town. It would be nice to visit there. Um, but the idea was actually to stay north. Uh, this, this at Willow Moor, or, or not far out of west of Willow Moor, the Swartberg Mountains start gradually. The idea was actually to stay north of the Swartberg Mountains, but somehow we missed the turn off, or I thought it was a bigger, more prominent road than, than it really was. But we were actually uh, quite a few kilometers south already and realized that we were going south of the mountains. But anyway, we looked at the time because we still wanted to go through Mayringsport and then go across to um, Prince Albert and go into the hell the same day. And we hadn't even booked accommodation or anything. So we decided to just stay on the tar road there. I think it was about 100 kilometers um, to, to Derist. 
Um, but a very beautiful road, very scenic, especially once you turn off that, that end road. I think it's the main road going down to George. If you turn right there or to the wrist, um, suddenly these views and vistas just open in front of you. And it was just, again, such a beautiful, beautiful day. I think because of the relatively cold weather that had been around the f a few days before, the, the, the sky and everything was so clear and it was blue and you could see very far. Um, those Swartberg mountains are, are really spectacular and, and very scenic. So we went along that road to Derist, uh where we had to fill up again. And then uh, from we didn't spend a lot of time in Derist. Uh It is a very pretty town. At that stage, we didn't really know that we would get back there, but we did get back a few days later. We just filled up and then we went into the Meiringspoort. It is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it's these high high cliffs and you just drive right in between them. Um, lots of river crossings, lots of bends. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful little part of this world. And is that is that got something to do with Baines? Yes, this was the first Baines pass that we were on, even though it's actually not a pass. It's what in Afrikaans you call a poort. So it's just a, a road that follows a river, uh, river valley through the high mountains but i mean as holger said the sides of that valley are just almost vertical vertical rocks and very spectacular rock formations as well with those fold mountains and the the twisted strata of the rock and so on um that road was i think originally built by by someone else mayring probably i'm assuming but then at some stage uh, because it's such a narrow valley there's quite frequent flooding there and it was completely damaged and then Baines uh, rebuilt it. So that was reason enough for us to stop and open our bottle of Baines whiskey which from then onwards at every road that Baines built we we stopped for for a little drink. Um not 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 too much to to get drunk or anything just a little cap of the bottle full because obviously we still had to ride after after that. I'd been looking forward to visiting Prince Albert for a long time. We met somebody on a cycling tour once and he said he was going to open a brewery in Prince Albert, which we didn't see. Yeah, and we stacked up on some meat and some beers because we were now going to a very remote place as our next stop. Yeah, and we, we hadn't had a bri for, for about almost a day. <laughs> so we needed supplies again. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, that town, Prince Albert, it, it, is, it is gentrified, I would say, but it is very, very beautiful and scenic. Um, they still have a lavater system there, which basically means that they, the town gets the water from, from a valley in the mountains. And then they have these open furrows that run in the gutters along, along the streets. And they have little sluices, so everybody has got a turn when they get water, sometimes once or twice a week for 20 minutes or so, uh, generally for flood irrigation. Over lunch, we, we also still had to arrange our accommodation, um, and it was actually sort of getting a bit late. I think it was about half past one, two o'clock or something. And we wanted to drive all the way into, into Die Hell or the Hamkas Kluwef, and uh, I had heard from some friends about a nice place to stay there. Um, the Khamkas Kluwef has got quite an interesting history. Um, we'll probably chat about that a little bit later. But um, we stayed in one of the few private places still still in that valley. Um, and we managed to luckily uh, get accommodation. I don't know, maybe it's easier now during COVID, but I can very well imagine that on a weekend or in busy times, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be that easy to get accommodation. 
Um, so uh, we left Prince Albert, and I think it's only about two, three k's out of town where you turn off on, onto a dirt road. Um, pr- uh, another uh, onto the Swartberg Pass, actually, which is another Baines Pass. So uh, we we rode up this road. The first part is is on the northern side where we came from. is is very spectacular in terms of the hairpin bends and all these uh, um, stone walls that were ba- built by Bain. And I think the pass is actually a, a world heritage site. And as far as I know, when when it when they do maintenance or repairs on it, they they are not allowed to use modern techniques. So if these stone retaining walls are damaged, they have to repair them in the way that they were originally built a hundred or more years ago so they're not allowed to use cement or anything like that and it is a dirt road i'm assuming it must also always stay a dirt road and i think they should never change it because that will just change the whole character of that road yeah going up that beautiful pass um swartberg pass i'd only been previously been on the other side coming from Otso and up um and i at that time probably missed the more spectacular part, which is the one from Prince Albert's side. Uh, then we reached uh, the top and uh, took a turn to the right uh, to the Hamkas Kluf, also known as De Hell. And that was our destination. That was the furthest, uh, I think the furthest west we, we had planned to go. And it has quite a reputation also amongst adventure riders, but... Uh, so many people who travel in South Africa, um, that uh, that is a special place to be. And so I was really excited to go there, also a bit apprehensive. Um, I think by that time I had already lost maybe two or three pieces of my motorcycle. I'm not quite sure which, (laughs) but it wasn't really uh, uh, central parts. It was more like uh, some some plastic parts or so. Oh, the one uh, rearview mirror had gone by then already as well. Um, but the bike was still in a good condition, um, but not so when we reached the bottom, but maybe l- later on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we should have actually, something that we didn't do, but we should have done is, is taken all these pieces that fell off Joe's bike <laughs> over the first few days and lined them all up. I think it already started in Matat with his rear mud guard. That's right, And then yes. one or two of these protectors on the exhaust that you don't touch them. It was the rear view mirror. And um, a few other pieces. I think Holger was also a bit appre- apprehensive about about this road into the hell. Um, worried about his four-wheel drive Fortuner. But I think in the end, the road wasn't actually that bad. I mean, it is a public road after all. Um, it's just got this reputation, but rightly so. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning and scenic, uh, amazing scenery there. Yeah, when what, what I, there was a sign that said two hours and it's only about 30 how many kilometers 37 yeah. kilometers and i thought that's that's two hours for other people yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know the, what i also not expected is that the first part which is relatively level where it goes up and down but before one comes to the drop which uh, some people might know with a picture going down into the real valley it takes the the main journey is actually before you reach that point. I was not aware of that. Yeah, I mean, at the top it says I think you need two hours to get there. I, I don't even know how long it took us. Longer than that. Longer but than but that, we stop yeah. frequently. Yeah, but yes. but I mean, the scenery everywhere is is spectacular. At that one point where you can see very far, it's almost like a sort of high altitude valley between two ridges of the Swartberg Mountains. 
and very <laughs> far in the distance you can see the road winding up uh, the side of, of, of that one of that valley but then you get um, sort of to a point which is quite close to the end already or to the place where the the sharp twisty road is that which is basically the descent into hell um yeah that 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 view there when that valley opens up in front of you and at the bottom of the valley the valley is quite narrow but it's it's long and you see that ro flat road going along the bottom of the valley with the houses yeah a little bit of history about this community so otto duplessis i think built this um this road in the 60s and before that there was it was very remote and very isolated yeah i mean we we don't even know we haven't even googled who otto duplessis was because the other pass was also named after him but we assume he was some sort of transport minister in, in the net government at, of the time there um yeah i mean this road uh, the, the swartberg pass was built by baines a long time ago more than 100 years ago but the road into the Hamkas Kloof for the hell was only built in 1962. And the interesting thing is actually more about the community who lived there at the bottom. Um, there were a few Afrikaner families who I think a long time ago, probably in the middle of the 1800s, um, went and settled in the Hamkas Kloof Valley. But it is very remote. The only way that they could get in there at the time was by walking up the Hamka River from Karlitzdorp side, I assume. And uh, they, the, that community settled there. I think initially it was just one or two families. Gradually, more and more came. But uh, you know, over time, they established themselves there. And anybody uh, who came in to settle, they were always uh, very suspicious of newcomers or incomers, as they call them, called them. Um, but they established the community and uh, the information they said that at, 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 at some point there were, or most of the time, there were between about 150 and 180 people living there, probably 12 or 15 families, I would imagine. In those days, the families were quite big. Um, and outsiders didn't really come in for a very, very long time. And uh, that information center, there, there's a story about uh, in the Boer War. I don't know which one. I'm assuming probably the second one. Um some people came into the valley and the locals said, no, you are the first outsiders who have come in here ever. There haven't been any English people here yet. <laughs> so those people lived pretty much in complete isolation for a for hundred years or so. Um, they did trade with the outside world just by walking in and out the valley and, and any, um, all their houses and everything they built as much as they could with material that they could find in the valley. But um, those displays also showed that they carried in certain things like, I don't know, 100 years ago, they might have walked out into Karlitzdorp to buy, for example, a, a cast iron stove or oven. And then they took this thing apart and carried it in, walked it in and reassembled it. So they had quite an isolated existence there for about 100 years or so. And then... Uh, Eventually, they, the government decided, no, they needed to build a road down there, which was only built in 1962. Um, and after that, that road, obviously, in a way, might have been a good thing for the community, but it also, in the end, resulted in the whole community you know, breaking down because the younger people didn't want to stay there anymore, and they left the valley. And in the end, there were only a few old families left. Gradually, they started selling off their farms, 
And I think now there's just one family left that permanently lives there on, on the original farm. Or most of the rest of the land is owned by Cape Nature now. And uh, fortunately, Cape Nature is controlled by a very progressive government because everything has been perfectly renovated and uh, those old family homes are now available for rent um, and in, in top form. We rented a, a little house just beyond the the Cape Nature Reserve from a private from a on a private farm, and I think it must have also been one of the original homes. Yeah, that was actually um, pizza ice of something. Yeah, um, pizza I think of uh, is it De Hoop? Was that the name of the? No, it was uh, Boerplas. 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 That's it. Yes. What also could be seen is that there was a fire that went through that valley uh, probably three years before we came, uh, before we reached it, or two years or so. Lots of um, charred trees there still standing around. Um, but this information center is really to be recommended. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of interesting information um, about the people that lived there, so isolated and remote. Yeah, and as we got into the valley, driving on this kind of track, and uh, Joe was leading us. <laughs> and then he was no longer there. <laughs> then fate struck, <laughs> actually in the form of a, a telephone wire. Um, I, for me, um, I, I, I was longing to come to, come to an end. Uh, that was a long day, and it was a beautiful day, lots of riding. And, but it's been, it had been quite strenuous in a way, this long ride, especially in the top and the hill. And then coming down, one was really nearly at the destination. And we were going quite slowly because it was, a, it was a sandy, very windy little road in that Hamtos Valley, um, the last kilometers uh, towards the place we, which we had then booked. And suddenly um, I was, uh, the, the motorbike was yanked to an abrupt halt and I fell to the side. Luckily, I wasn't going very fast, as I said, so I, I didn't really hurt myself. But I wondered what must have stopped that bike, uh, what, uh, what I must have caught in one of the uh, uh, wheels. And then standing up, uh, Holger, I think, was, was, was behind me, or was it you, Herman? I'm not sure. And then uh, we saw that wire. Yeah, no, it was me. I was just thinking which part, it must have been a very crucial part of the bike that has fallen <laughs> off now. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, there was a piece of telephone wire strung across the road. Um, later we found out, I mean, it looked very old because everywhere, all the way from Prince Albert into the hell, we followed this wire. It's just two strands. And somewhere in the information center it also said that they put that telephone in there in 1960, whatever. It was the first time they got telephone in the valley. And this must be the, well, the wire from that telephone line still, but the locals there at that one farm where, where they, they still live, uh, the people who never sold, they told us, yeah, no, that telephone, they haven't had telephone there for six or seven years, so those wires haven't been working anymore, and I'm assuming some sort of tree or something must have fallen over the, over the wire and dropped it onto the road, and somehow it snagged Joe's bike, and he fell. <laughs> yeah, and well, first uh, I was just happy that uh, I hadn't hurt myself and uh, got up, and... Um, yeah, then I saw uh, that the steering was somehow a bit bent, but Herman was actually the one who first who said, oh boy, the clutch handle had broken off, clean off. And um, then I thought, what are we going to do now? 
we're in de hell, in the middle of nowhere, and I haven't got a clutch. Um, I, I was, uh, yeah, I was really in shock in the first uh, minute or two or so, and thought, oh boy, what are we going to do now? And um, well, we then decided to just uh, go back a kilometer or so um, to this uh, last private kind of uh, farm that there was. They also had a small restaurant there, and um, the lady who uh, stays there then um, helped us to through her satellite phone or whatever she had there to try to find out where the nearest motorbike store would be. That was in Otsu, and we also had the help of Chris, uh, Moto Chris from Pinetown, who gave us the number of the person in, in, in Otsu. But it was obviously still not clear how were we ever going to get that bike up to Otsu. Um, but then uh, the good advice uh, of that lady was, you know, just uh, now enjoy the evening. And I think that's what we really did then. Yeah, I mean, we, we basically, it was quite late in the afternoon already, so the place in Otsuan wasn't open anymore. We couldn't get through to them on the phone. Uh, so we decided it will be tomorrow's problem. She also said that her husband is going to look at it, and he's quite a practical person. So we left there thinking and hoping that maybe by the morning he would have somehow managed to weld a new clutch lever out of a piece of rebar or whatever. <laughs> So we went along our way to Pizza Placa accommodation. Um, there was also like a water crossing across the uh, Hamkras uh, River there. Um, but it, it's quite long, but it, uh, fairly deep, but it, it's, it isn't rough at the bottom. I think it's got concrete at the bottom. There were warning signs that it might be slippery from mud and algae and so on, but it was easy to cross. And we had, a, again, a lovely evening there in, in that valley. And um, again, we had a braai. And the next morning, we didn't really rush that much because we knew we had to wait anyway for these shops to open in uh, Otsuan before we could phone them. Um, I think eventually we got to that lady at about half past eight or so, I think. Yeah, uh, they, I saw my bike, uh, which was still in the same condition as it had been the evening before, <laughs> without any reconditioned clutch. And um, also, uh, on nearer inspection... Um, we found out that one of the main suspension bolts uh, had also fallen off. I had noticed that there was a bit more noise than usually on the bike while going down the hell descent. But um, being a rookie and not wanting to uh, really uh, see more problems, I just ignored it and went down <laughs> the day before. But now um, uh, we saw that uh, that bolt was crucial. Join us for part three where you will find out how Joe makes it out of the hell. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so. For more information, visit our website at holger.co.za.